Well, welcome back and welcome to this, our third uh, show uh, this autumn, this fall. Um, welcome to all of you from wherever you are, from right across the world. Uh, we have uh, regular subscribers, we have viewers, we have people from all over the world. So welcome to you all. And each time uh, here at Palestine Deep Dive, we take a much closer look at what's been happening in Palestine. Uh, and we speak to people who know what they're talking about, people who have got a special uh, knowledge, experience uh, and take of the situation. And uh, we're always very, very keen to hear from all of you. So uh, do prepare, get your questions in, and we're going to get as many as we can to our guests tonight. Now, I'm Mark Seddon. Uh, I used to work for Al Jazeera Television some years ago, and I've also worked for the United Nations as a speechwriter to the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. But today, uh, we are absolutely delighted to welcome Ben Jamal, the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign here in the UK. We are going to be dividing the show into two halves today. Uh, we have another guest, a second guest, will be coming on a little later on. Uh, and uh, uh, But I really wanted to, to start with um, uh, Ben, because Ben is fresh back from uh, the annual conference of Britain's main opposition uh, party, the Labour Party. Uh, and uh, during that conference, there was a debate on Palestine and uh, uh, also a debate about Israel and the future of Labour Party policy towards the Middle East. It was really quite dramatic, uh, a quite extraordinary uh, debate and vote. Um, and Ben, of course, was there. And uh, we're going to be speaking to Ben shortly, talking to him about what really happened, uh, you know, what difference this could make because there was a fairly strong vote and it came from right across the Labour Party uh, that will be seen um, in many parts of the world as a pretty big shift politically by a significant opposition party such as the Labour Party in Britain. Um, now, uh, I mean, I just uh, I thought I'd quickly reprise for people uh, what happened um, because last week uh, this particular motion is adopted. Uh, it called on Labour to cease the UK-Israeli arms trade in areas where it violates Palestinian rights and to cease trade with illegal Israeli settlements. And the conference also condemns the ongoing Nakba in Palestine, Israel's militarised violence attacking the Alaska mosque, the forced displacements from Sheikh Jarrah and the deadly assault on Gaza. And furthermore, the motion read, it uh, underscored the need for action due to Israel's continuing illegal actions and also urged the Labour Party to adhere to an ethical policy on all UK trade with Israel, including stopping any arms trade used to violate Palestinian human rights and trade with illegal Israeli settlements. Uh, the motion also called on Labour to ensure that Israel stops the building of settlements, reverses any annexation, ends the occupation of the West Bank and the blockade of Gaza, uh, and brings down the wall and respects the rights of the Palestinian people, as enshrined in international law to return to their homes. Um, this was a, a quite extraordinary event in many ways. It wasn't really uh, expected. There was quite a lot of media uh, interest, as you might expect. Uh, and, and the motion was actually brought to the conference floor by the by the British Labour Party's youth wing, Young Labour. Um, now, of course, uh, those people who have been 
part and parcel of British politics and who know about the British Labour Party will know that the conference traditionally has been a pretty lively place, aside during the Blair years when arguably it was sort of toned down and closed down, but came back to life again, certainly when the Labour Party uh, gained a big membership. Half a million people were members of the Labour Party when Jeremy Corbyn was uh, leader. Um, so the conference is like an annual parliament, if you like, um, and the fact that this vote was pretty overwhelming um, is very interesting in itself. And of course, uh, the, what we're going to be going on to ask Ben about is you know, what possible effect can this have? I mean, let's be honest, Labour's in opposition. And of course, as we know, these uh, resolutions, even when they're passed, are not binding. And so the big question will be, will, will this Labour Party leadership actually accept what its members are saying? But before we get to Ben, I think we've actually got a clip of the young delegate, and his name was uh, Javad Khan, um, moving the motion. Um, so for those of you who missed it, and I think Ben will be able to tell us that uh, we may not have seen all of the speech uh, when it was broadcast. Some of it seemed to have been chopped back for some reasons. But anyway, I think we may have it. Um, perhaps we can see it now. Now it is my generation's turn to play our part in ending apartheid in Israel. My generation refuses to sit by while Palestinian civilians are shot by snipers and drones are marketed at arms fairs in East London. We refuse to sit by while our councillors are told that they can't divest from companies that violently enforce Israel's apartheid laws. We refuse to sit by while yet another generation of Palestinians lose their homes in this ongoing act of settler colonialism. This summer, inspired by the sacrifices of those who have struggled before us, we took to the streets to show our determination to answer the Palestinian people's call for solidarity, whatever it takes. Sometimes it's not easy to know exactly what that is, but comrades, the words, the gestures and the practical actions that we take at conference here today mean so much to a people who have been struggling for their most basic rights for far too many years. The motion before you today will not only send our uncompromising solidarity to the Palestinian people by calling for sanctions against a state that is practising war crimes, it will bring us one step closer to finally ending a shameful century of British complicity in the denial of their rights to self-determination, liberation and return. <laughs> Conference, this motion is about the next generation of Palestinians, those children who were born refugees, about giving them a chance at a future in which they can be free. It is also about the next generation of the labour movement, about breaking with our imperial past and enacting our foundational principles, solidarity and internationalism. As the great hero of the global anti-apartheid struggle once said, we know all too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Please support the motion, free, free Palestine! Well, there we have it. I mean, a very, very powerful speech from Jawad Khan. Um, I, I mean, I don't suppose the party panjandrums were too happy to hear all of that. Uh, and... Um, Certainly wouldn't have been particularly happy, I imagine, Ben, at the, uh, the result of that vote. But uh, you know, tell us, what, you know, what does it actually mean? And how did you get there? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, let me say you're right. The leadership 
was not happy with such an unequivocal vote. And um, in fact, within half an hour of the vote, uh, Lisa Nandy um, had announced, the Shadow Foreign Secretary had announced that the, the leadership opposed um, the motion. But first of all, th this is, let, let's, let's put this into context. This is a really historic motion. It's the most progressive motion on Palestine ever passed by a major UK uh, political party. It explicitly references in the text of the motion the body of reports that have identified Israel as a state practicing the crime of apartheid. And then it moves, as you said, to the consequences that that, that flow from that analysis, that, that draw from the lessons of histories that you do not attempt to have normalized relations with a state um, practicing apartheid. You hold that state to account, including via sanctions. Um, and as you say, the motion speaks to the need to end all trade uh, that violates Palestinian rights, including the arms trade. The final thing I would say why this was so significant and why we were so keen to ensure a motion like this was brought to the Labour Party conference is it challenges what I would call the dominant narrative frame uh, within mainstream political discourse across the West, but uh, you know certainly here in the UK. And this is a narrative that says Israel is a liberal democracy, it's an ally, it may be engaged in a problematic <laughs> military occupation, but that's temporary. And if only Israel could find a partner for peace, it would end. And so the route forward is through mechanisms of conflict resolution, peace building maneuvers that allow these two warring parties to understand each other, but, but, but mechanisms that ignore the dynamics of power. And this shifts that narrative to say, no, this is an issue of justice. This is about the reality that Israel has established a regime of power over the Palestinian people that meets the legal definition of apartheid. And therefore, it requires accountability measures to address that. Ben, I mean, the United Nations says it's apartheid. Uh, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, says it's apartheid. Um, there was a big pushback um, in the media and certainly on social media following that vote, challenging um, people who have supported that resolution at the Labour Party conference and historically have said, there's an apartheid system at work in Israel saying, give us the proof. Where are the signs? Where are the signs that say whites only, like they were in South Africa? Well, you could argue that actually apartheid continued long after those signs were taken down. But just before we move on to you know a little more, more detail about what's really happening and what really got you to this uh, stage at the Labour Party conference, can, can you unequivocally tell us, you know, how does apartheid manifest itself mm. in Israel-Palestine today? Yeah, so look, it's worth remembering when when um, we use the term apartheid, when Palestinian civil society, who've articulated this reality of apartheid for years, use the term. It's not it's not used pejoratively. It's not used in a casual way to say this is a you know a regime that we think is problematic. Uh, apartheid is a is a, a legal term that's defined under the the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court very very precisely. Let me let me quote what it says. It says apartheid is inhumane acts committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group, and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. Now, as I said, Palestinian civil society has said for years, this, this is an accurate description of what we're experiencing. That's something that's been recognized by legal scholars and political 
analysts for some time, but crucially, we've seen two crucial developments in the last year in this analysis. Important reports from Betzalem, Israel's leading human rights monitoring organization, and then from Human Rights Watch, that both um, forensically examine this issue and come to the conclusion uh, that Israel is practicing this crime. Betzalem puts it very starkly. Let me quote again. They say, the Israeli regime enacts in all the territory it controls. So Israeli sovereign territory, in other words, the state of Israel, East Jerusalem, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and apartheid regime. One organizing principle lies at the base of a wide array of Israeli policies, advancing and perpetuating the supremacy of one group, Jews, over another Palestinians. Now, that includes uh, how Israel treats the 20% of its population, of its citizenry, that are Palestinian. And it is true, and we often hear this, yes, Palestinians can vote in Israeli elections, they can even stand for office, but they are subject to a whole barrage of laws that effectively uh, deny them full equality under the law. That includes, for example, laws that allow 43% of the towns in Israel to remain Jewish only uh, by denying Palestinians the right to settle in those towns on the grounds that they might disrupt the social and cultural harmony of the town. So that's why we use the term apartheid, because it's an accurate description of the regime of control that Israel exercises over Palestinians, whether they're citizens in Israel, whether they're living under military occupation, or indeed whether they are refugees denied the right of return whilst Israel enacts a policy that allows any Jewish person in the world to automatically become a citizen of the state. Human rights watch say that law in itself and the context of denial of the right of return to Palestinians meets the de definition of apartheid. Well, I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, and, 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 th and thank you uh, for, for setting that out, because there has been pushback and uh, and, uh, you know, people often you know, uh, 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 sort of fall back and say, oh, my, uh, you know, perhaps, I, perhaps I'm not quite right on, on all of these things. I don't have the facts at my fingertips. Well, people do now. And I think also, Ben, I mean, you'll know this. You, you've been part and parcel of this for a long time. The big push to actually go beyond talk about what's happening in Palestine to action. Um, and going back to this resolution that was passed at the British Labour Party conference, I mean, it's quite explicit in what it's calling for. It's calling for uh, sanctions, and especially sanctions when it comes to uh, sales of military hardware that's going to be used um, in the uh, occupied territories. But I wonder if you could just give us some idea of how, you know, this to, to get to this stage, I mean, clearly there's a lot of support on the floor uh, there was a vote by hand, by hand, I believe. I think you were saying it was a majority vote. But these things don't just happen. It, it, it requires a, a lot of organisation, a lot of campaigning over a long period of time. So how, how do you – were you surprised at this vote or, or did you think that all of the work that's gone in to, to this informing people, campaigning, was paying off? How did you get – how did you actually get to this situation? Yeah, so it's, it, it's worth, and you're absolutely right. This 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 takes a huge amount and and a you know long period of time uh, of organising and mobilising, and and a key strategic priority for PSC for some years has been how do we mainstream this understanding of the reality of apartheid? Now, a, a crucial first step, and it was a real stepping stone in terms of getting this motion passed, uh, was the work we do within the trade union movement. Fourteen major trade unions and the TUC are all 
uh, affiliated to PSC. And in 2020, uh, we were able to work with those unions to get the TUC to pass a historic motion that was the first time the trade union movement had made a reference to apartheid. And what happened then, of course, then we had those the publication of that Human Rights Watch report and the Betzalem report. And that gave us space to push harder. And this year at the TUC, shortly before the Labour Party conference, they passed an even mm -hmm. stronger motion. So then we had seven motions submitted to the Labour Party, including the Young Labour one. All of them referenced apartheid. All of them called for sanctions. So the next step, the crucial step, and we honestly didn't know. We we knew dynamics were changing in the Labour Party. We knew all of the pressure that was being applied on Labour Party members to be silent on the issue of Palestine. So the, the, the first step on the Saturday of the conference was would this motion get prioritised? And the process there is that basically there are dozens of motions on different issues and delegates can choose 10 of them. So that, you know, the NHS was in there, uh, housing was in there, and they choose just 10 motions from dozens. Uh, and because of huge mobilising, fantastic work done by Young Labour and other groups, uh, Palestine came amongst the top 10 to be prioritised. And then the next step was how do we ensure that this, this gets passed? And what was absolutely fundamental, we had every single trade union lined up to support this motion because they'd already effectively taken this step at the trade union conference. Then when the vote came, what was really interesting was it was overwhelmingly uh, carried. If I was being cynical or realistic, <laughs> um, the fact that the live feed got cut during the debate, so the speech <laughs> that you just saw did not go out. Miraculously, suddenly the feed went down whilst the motions on Palestine were being uh, debated and then came up again when, when Afghanistan was being debated. That was because at that point... The, the leadership knew they had lost this uh, and it was carried with a, with just a show of hands, but effectively more than 70% of the people in that room. Oh, that's interesting, Ben, to interrupt you. Well. Presumably, I mean, my guess is that they allowed a show a show of hands because had they had they been what they call a card vote, then that would have demonstrated just how strong the support was for this uh, for this for this motion, which makes it even more extraordinary now we think about it. But the other thing that strikes me is that you know, I'm I'm looking at the Labour Party front bench and uh, the leading lights in the Labour Party now, and I, I'm not that old that I can't remember that many of them have been on your platforms or sharing platforms that have been uh, supportive of the Palestinians in the past, including the the current Labour leader uh, in Britain, Sir Keir Starmer. Mm -hmm. Lisa Nandy, you mentioned her. She is the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and she said that one of her first, well, her first overseas trip will be to. Uh, the Middle East to Israel and to the occupied. I think she's going to the Palestinian territories, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But tell me what is and 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 immediately after this vote, the leadership disassociated themselves from it. What do they disagree with that was in that resolution that was passed? What do they find so difficult that they all supported not so long ago? Um, well, there's, there's two answers I can give you to that. I mean, first of all, in terms of um, why is the leadership why did the leadership really not want this vote to take place and um, why were they very clearly hoping that the the issue of Palestine would become invisible at this conference that there'd be no motions passed on Palestine um, and that's due straightforwardly to the systematic attempt by Israel and its allies and Mark we've discussed this before at, at previous events here um, this global 
effort to conflate activism with Palestine with anti-Semitism that's had a real chilling effect. Uh, and as a result of that, there's, there was a determination in a sense to be silent on the issue of Palestine. But the other thing I can say to you in terms of where does this stem from and is this actually a vigorous opposition, a resistance to the narrative of apartheid from a place where people say, well, we just think this is wrong. Well, let me tell you, um, a while back, we took the director of Betzalem into a meeting okay. with the Shadow Foreign Affairs front bench team uh, into a private briefing session in which he outlined the Betzalem report um, and outlined it in very, very clear detail and why Betzalem had come to the conclusion. A significant conclusion from a, an Israeli human rights organization that this was apartheid and they had to confront that reality. Now, I can tell you this, at the end of that presentation, which is forensic and clear, uh, the message from the Labour Shadow Affairs front bench team was, we can't disagree with your analysis. In other words, we don't have anything to say to say you're wrong and here's why. But do you not accept that this is unhelpful language, that this is this is language that's going to make people uncomfortable? Well, the best answer to that uh, question is the one that Betzalem actually deliver in the conclusion of their report. And they say this, they say, look, confronting the reality of apartheid might make people uncomfortable but it's not as uncomfortable as living with a boot on your neck. It's not as uncomfortable as living under the reality of apartheid. Well, I mean, that's very, very powerful. And of course, um, the, you know, so many of the leading lights in the British Labour Party were at the forefront of the anti-apartheid movement uh, uh, and the anti-colonial movement as well. And so it does seem a bit of a stretch to, to find that um, all these years later, they're really having a struggle with the um, with the particular concept of it. But looking beyond just the um, the British Labour Party, what was interesting about that vote, as you were saying, is that it went from it was across the board. It was from the left and the right, and from the unions and what have you. Um, and it's extremely powerful. But I think we can also have a good guess that, that the opinion wouldn't necessarily be dissimilar in other political parties, and in fact across the public opinion in general uh, in Britain and Europe and North America. Um, so do you think that you're going to take this campaign elsewhere or how, maybe you're doing it? I mean, is there going to be a, a future vote at a Conservative Party conference that could go the same way? Um, look, there are uh, there are different dynamics within each party, <clears throat> different realities that, um, you know, inform where different political parties sit. And we know that it's a much tougher challenge um, because in the sense of where, the Conservative Party sits on a whole range of progressive values uh, to get them to shift their, their position. Um, but the argument, if you like, going back to what I said, what's the sort of dominant narrative that Israel's worked very, very hard to sort of sustain across mainstream political discourse? And there is this analysis that um, Israel is a liberal democracy. And yes, it's becoming increasingly impossible for Israel not to... Um, except that it is overseeing a military occupation. But the narrative is uh, that requires mechanisms of bringing Palestinians and Israelis together so they can understand each other. And we don't want to talk about um, notions of apartheid, etc. Now, the problem is it is becoming increasingly difficult to sustain that narrative. We've had these two reports. Very soon, there's going to be a further report that's going to come from Amnesty International. It's going to reach exactly the same conclusion. So now we're going to have 
not just Palestinian civil society. And look, sadly, it may be possible for people to say we can ignore the voices of Palestinians. And I speak in saying that as a Palestinian. But you've now got Israel's leading human rights organization. You've now got the two leading human rights organizations in the world. We've got the trade union movement in the UK saying this. We'll have more and more NGOs and civil society organizations affirming this reality. Uh, last year, we saw Israel moving to attempt a process of de jure annexation, taking further sways of the West Bank. And we saw for the first time, you know, including conservative MPs standing up and saying, this is something we just cannot defend. And this is going to require uh, sanctions response. And that was the first time many in the Conservative Party had stepped up and said, we need to talk about sanctions. And now people have to confront the reality. The UN special reporter has been very clear. It doesn't matter if Israel moves to de jure annexation. It already has established a de facto annexation. We had a historic vote in Ireland this year um, where the Doyle passed a resolution saying there is a de facto annexation. So if there's a de facto annexation, and if a de jure annexation requires sanctions, why doesn't a de facto annexation require sanctions? So the problem for Israel is the sort of veneer, if you like, that it's tried to 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 place to say, look, they're really, you know, we, we don't need accountability measures. We are not enacting anything you should be worried about. It's becoming harder and harder to sustain. Uh, the reality of apartheid is confronting people uh, stark in the face. And that was what brought 200,000 people out onto the streets of the UK this summer. They saw what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Israel lost control. Um, of the the um, the narrative over that because it went viral on social media. It broke through. People saw it. They understood it. They saw what was happening in Gaza. They understood uh, that this was a process of one people dominating another people, and they responded and they marched. Mm -hmm. So we have to. We, we're not naive. We know the challenges. We know the dynamics of power. Mm -hmm. uh, but effectively, I think the core message people should take from this vote is whatever the pressures, whatever the attempts to suppress this reality, um, you do not vacate a single space. You defend that space. You mobilize and you organize within it. Um, and you encourage people. You empower people by enlarging that space. And one of the crucial things, Mark, if I can say this, that we think we've achieved with this vote in the Labour Party, there's been huge pressure on Labour Party members in their CLPs, in their local parties, not to raise the issue of Palestine. Now, they can all raise the issue. They can all say we want to discuss apartheid. And they can straightforwardly say there's nothing controversial about this. We are wanting to discuss, debate and press for action on a motion that has been passed overwhelmingly by our party at its conference. As you were saying, Ben, and by the way, I've been with Ben Jamal, the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, <clears throat> sadly not for a great deal longer, so we'll have to get one or two final questions in. But um, yes, your point there about the veneer being being scraped away, um, all of those efforts that we've seen to, to, to push the debate in a direction that's much more sympathetic to Israel do appear to be falling apart, especially when it comes to public opinion and grassroots opinion amongst political activists. And I suppose the question is, you, know, you can actually take this further, you know, given the success at this Labour conference, all right, the Labour Party isn't in power, but maybe one day it will be. And you could get it to the um, Clause 5 manifesto meeting and get it written into the manifesto so they have even less wriggle room. But I suppose in a, in a way, people who are watching from elsewhere in the world say, this is a bit parochial, it's great what's happening in Britain, but what's happening elsewhere? Would you say, in kind of summary, Ben, that 
you know, you're seeing, <clears throat> you know, the, the scales falling from people's eyes globally as to what's really happening. We've had these landmark reports by uh, both Israeli, Palestinian, international organizations into um, the situation, uh, the apartheid situation in Palestine. Do you see that there's been this enormous public movement, but at the same time, there's backsliding amongst the politicians, the political leaders. And I'm thinking particularly of the Biden administration, where a lot of people are concerned that it's actually he's continuing the same policy of the Trump administration. And also the fact that essentially many of the Gulf states are continuing with this rather, um, in what many people think is really rather a grotesque um, accommodation with Israel. And of course, you've had the recent decision of the African Union to accept Israel as an observer state. So there appear to be things happening at different levels. Uh, um, what's what's it going to take to get the Biden administration to begin to change? I suppose is uh, my final question to you. You're just throwing in a a, a really easy one to finish off with. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, let, let me let me answer it in this way. Um, I, I, I remember once being in a meeting where a Palestinian was asked, "What you know? When you look at the dynamics of your struggle, uh, when you look at the over seventy years now." of struggling against apartheid and the situation continued to get worse. How do you sustain hope? And the, for a Palestinian, the answer was simple. I mean, Mahmoud Darwish, the national poet of Palestine, once said, Palestinians don't choose to live a life of struggle. Like everybody else, they want to live an ordinary life. Uh, but when you're deprived of your fundamental rights in your homeland, you are obliged to be a slave. Uh, to that homeland and to the struggle for the realization of, of your rights. Now, we also have to sustain ourselves within the solidarity movement, taking our inspiration from the Palestinians who continue to resist, um, based on the hope that is at the heart of every progressive movement, that the arc of history bends towards progress, but recognizing it doesn't do it unless we all lend our weight upon it so look we look there are various measures israel is conducting um in what in some ways is a very effective campaign to try try to suppress to make people fearful of speaking up for palestine but we should take inspiration as i say from what happened globally this summer where despite all of those efforts people responded to a profound injustice they saw by mobilizing there are huge huge dynamics that inform why the U.S. continues to lend its support for Israel. But there are cracks in that process as well, in that structure of support. One of the developments that people should be very conscious of is what's happening within young Jewish communities in the States, where there is a fracturing of support for Israel. And I think that is because it becomes increasingly impossible to sustain this narrative, as I say, of, of, of Israel um, as a liberal democratic state that's engaged in some sort of struggle um, of competing nationalism with the Palestinians. People are understanding this is about an unjust system of power and it has to be confronted and Israel has to be held <clears throat> accountable. So step by step, piece by piece, we continue to move forward with the struggle. And I hope people take inspiration from what happened at the Labour Party. I was speaking to people a year ago within the Labour Party were saying, we need to abandon this space. You can't speak up for Palestine anymore. Other people were saying, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to organise. We're going to mobilise. We're going to work with our allies in the trade union movement. And we're going to push back. That's what happened last week. And people should take inspiration from it. Well, thank you, Ben. 
Uh, and I'm sure I'm sure we all do. And um, and I think from all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive, congratulations on what um, you and others have managed to achieve there. And uh, we hope that it actually begins to bind people to all of this and that if there is a Labour government, it will enact this policy. But more than that, that um, uh, it will also have an effect on the body politic um, elsewhere, because it's not just about one political party. Um, it's, a, it's a seismic move. Others are watching from around the world. There's no doubt about that. And certainly what um, you and young Labour and other Palestinian, pro-Palestinian activists have, have done is just changed the whole terms of the debate. So it's hugely significant. Thank you so very much, Ben. Director Mark, thank you. Come back again, please. Uh, the, the risk of turning this into a mutual admiration society as well, the work that, that, that you and everyone at Palestine Deep Dive is also crucial in, in bringing these realities to people's attention. So um, solidarity to what you're doing as well. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ben. And, and we'll see you again soon, I hope. But now we are joined by our next guest. This is a two-part show today. Um, we are joined by our friend, uh, Matan Hellman. Now, i just tell you something about Matan. Uh, Matan, welcome. Matan, before we start, tell us where you are, will you? I am now in Leiden, in the Netherlands. You're in you're in the Netherlands, in Holland. Well, yes. welcome to uh, us here at Palestine Deep Dive. Um, we've got viewers from right across the world. They've been very interested, or they will be very interested to hear from you shortly. But I just wanted to introduce you, if I may, and to say that um, Matan is uh, with us uh, today. He's a conscientious objector. Uh, he's refused to be conscripted into the Israeli military, uh, and he now sits on the board of an organization called, we can get into this and discuss this later, but the Refuser Solidarity Network. Um, and Matan was first sent to prison in 2017, um, but before being imprisoned, he wrote, um, some people may find this, uh, you know, strange that you should say this, but you'll be able to tell us why you said it. I know I'll remember this day all my life. I'll remember it not for being in, being imprisoned, but for being the day in which I mark my freedom. Um, now, you were imprisoned, I think, Matan, for a total of 110 days for refusing to join the Israeli Defence Force. And um, and I think you were, ended up being sent to prison six times. We'll get into that shortly, if we, we, we may, um, because, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will be especially here we are in britain we we uh, conscription was abolished here i think back in the late 50s early 60s if i'm right um oddly enough i worked when i first my first job in this country i sat alongside um a chap who had been uh, forced to do uh, conscription very much against his will he wasn't as brave as you by the way uh, and they ended up sending him to suez in 1956 uh, and this was the last sort of great British uh, imperial play um, in, in your part of the world, which all went catastrophically wrong. Uh, when I say last, of course, I've suddenly forgotten the much more recent um, uh, interventions uh, in, in Iraq, for instance, um, and, and elsewhere in the region. But that was the last time when conscripts were sent from this country. So a lot of people will think, oh, gosh, that's quite something. And the other person I work, used to work with uh, we had also, uh, like you, refused during the era of apartheid in South Africa. And this is what brings us, I think, to our conversation today. He had refused to be conscripted into the South African military. 
um, because he refused to go and um, fight for South Africa in Namibia, which was being illegally occupied as uh, the Palestinian territories today. Um, he was able to escape from South Africa to come and live in Britain. Um, you unfortunately clearly couldn't escape from where you were because you had to go and um, and, and 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 you were punished for what you did. But Matan, you know, welcome to Palestine Deep Dive. I mean, I hope we'll we'll get a few people sending some questions in. But I wonder, could you just start by, you know, telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, I, I bet you didn't start out life by thinking, well, I'm going to refuse to go and join the IDF, but you did. So tell us a bit about yourself, a bit about your family, if you will, and 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 what what got you, got what got you to think and act in the way that you have. Okay, so I was born in uh, Kibbutz Organ, and for people who don't know, Kibbutz is like a socialist village. And like basically, like maybe it kind of sounds confusing, but yeah, like for like uh, Kibbutz is more uh, the left side of uh, the political in Israel, but still most of the left, even though it's left and what we consider left, so it will be for Palestinian rights. Even though that it's still a Zionist, which is the Israel, like the Jewish nationalistic. So even though they like uh, we support like uh, socialism and uh, brotherhood between uh, uh, people and countries, it's still like what kind of support going to the army and like a place that going to the most uh, uh, like uh, special units in the in the army. But like, so it was, for me, it was a bit confusing, all these ideas. That in one side, it's also about socialism and brotherhood between people, but the other side, you don't really say anything about the Palestinian and they're still going to the army and go to occupy them and oppress the Palestinians. And what about my uh, family? Um, my grandfather was a socialist and he came from like Ukraine to Israel to create the kibbutz and one of the founders of the kibbutz and he was in the, in the left party of israel it's called by them it's mapam which is the not a communist party but it's the second i would say most socialist but they are still zionist as i said before and also i have a dutch family which this is from where my mother came which my grand grandfather he basically he was in the holocaust back then he saved jews because he was not a uh, he was not uh, Jewish, and he could he joined the resistance against the Nazis back then, and he saved Jews, and he also refused to uh, work for the Nazis back then. And he, yeah, fascinating. But um, you know, so you've had this uh, uh, very interesting background. Uh, you know, a, a, a family with, with deep principles, value, and history. Um, and yet, you know, your actual experience is sort of pushing you in different directions. But tell me, you know, because you were obviously concerned as a as a quite a young as a young person about the the values that you were hearing from the kibbutz and from your family and from, you know, the the history of your family in Ukraine and what have you. But what you were hearing about um, the the lot of the Palestinians. But I mean, I guess I'm guessing as a as a young teenager, you wouldn't have ever gone to see Palestine. You wouldn't have known. You wouldn't have been to the Palestinian territories, would you? I mean. You would just no. wouldn't know, would you? No. Like Israel is very good for hiding it. Like we are not see any Arabic or any uh, Palestinians at all. Right? We don't have any engagement with them. So it's very hard to like 
if you, I don't know if you've ever been in Israel, but if you're in Israel, you don't really see there is a person. You don't really see the occupation. Like you really need to go there for seeing it. Because if you're in Tel Aviv or anywhere else, you don't see it. It looks like, oh, everything fine here. Everything is good. There's nothing wrong. But it's very, like, I would say, uh, smart way of the Israel government to try to hide the crimes. So like, well, that I, we I, not I, know that. I mean, Matan, you asked the question. I mean, uh, I, I have been and I, I've been to Israel and the Palestinian territory, the occupied Palestinian territories. And I remember certainly um, traveling from Jordan into uh, the West Bank and, and trying to get to Jenin. Um, and uh, and just, I suppose, being very fortunate in that we were visitors and there were parliamentarians who were leading our delegation, that uh, we couldn't be stopped for too long, but just actually getting an idea of how difficult it was for Palestinians from move, to move from one Palestinian city to another, let alone Israelis. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I guess so your first experience, if you're a, a young Israeli, of what life must be like in the occupied territories um, is if you end up in the Israeli Defence Force, which, of course, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't join the IDF. But tell us... Well, you know, why is there conscription, um, and how old do you? How old are you when you are supposed to join up? And what do you have to do once you're conscripted? Um, it's basically when you are 16, you start to be like a uh, property of the army. So you you have kind of a test to rank you to reach uh, a job you will have in the army, and like you couldn't be like I don't know. A, chef in the army that you can be like a soldier which is i think most people are going to do and when you're recruit and they go to to be a soldier it's basically when you finish your high school so plus minus is 80 19. that's the time i see and um i mean so i mean you decided well i mean how did you come to this conclusion at the age of 16 that you did not want to do your national service i mean what what was it that well, i'm not going to do it I mean, because you must have I mean, your family and your friends must have told you there were going to be consequences. Yeah, the first time actually I heard about occupation, because as I said, in Israel, we don't really talk about it at all, not at school, never. So I was in a youth movement. I was in a youth movement. It's called the Shomer Tzair. It's like a Zionist socialist uh, youth movement. And basically there, when I was 15, we had like an activity that was about talking about what happened in the West Bank and what Israel do there and our oppression of the Palestinian. And then I was a bit shocked, like first time you heard about what happened there, what my people, my brother, my friends, uh, father, everyone basically went to the army. This is what they do. Plus like, of course, not everyone, but most. And I was shocked about it. And then I was like, how did I didn't hear it about it at all? And I started to like read uh, uh, read books and I start to see uh, testimonies of uh, uh, breaking silence uh, soldiers. So breaking silence is an organization of people who was in the army and conference about what they did there for people don't know. And I was like, I'm not, I'm really not agree with it. I cannot do it by myself. And I feel like I must do something. I cannot only not be part of it, which my values mm -hmm. as I see everyone here crawl and yeah, there's no reason that I will oppress others. Like I see like the Palestinians, my brothers, as I see my Israelis, Jewish friends. I don't see any difference. So Matan, in fact, there's a, there's a question that's come in from um, 
uh, Newcastle, the city of Newcastle here in the UK, uh, and it's from the, uh, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Um, and the question is, what kind of numbers refuse? Um, and for those who are conscripted, how long do you have to serve? Um, it's a difficult question. It's a very difficult question, I have to say, because officially I can say that people refuse. Um, wait, I will come for it soon. Just a moment, I want to say something before. So I felt like I need to do something, mm. like for them, my knowledge, and I say that for I need to speak up. And the best way to speak up, at, at least in Israel, it's actually to do an action, and people will hear, want to hear you and, and see you. So as I saw it, the best thing to do, it was to refuse, because it's kind of like to take a microphone to your hand and everyone wants to hear you and you can speak up. And it's like your voice is getting from much more people. And that's so this is why I decided to refuse because I wanted to change it and more people will do it as well. So now for the question, it's very hard to say how many people refuse because less than 50% of the population who needs to who needs to be in the army actually not going to the army. But most of them with many different uh, reasons why they are not going to the army. Mm. But there are some people refuse, but it's, which is like, like me. So it's like, I don't know, around four per year. So or even less sometimes, even more like that's plus minus. But there's a lot of people who think the same, but they don't want to be in prison. Like which uh, reasonable person wants to be in prison, of course. <laughs> no. Like it's not the most no. nice experience ever, like for 18 years old who just finished school. So many people just try to get uh, a, not a permission not to be in the army in different ways. They try to say they have a mental disorder or they try to go to a consciousness uh, committee and try to get permission from them that they don't need to be there or they have like a physical uh, problem. But people that we know for sure refuse because those reasons it's around for a year, like very not a lot. Mm, mm. We have a, we have a message here. This is from Caroline Deal. Caroline says, thank you, Matt, for speaking out so courageously and for making these huge decisions. Um, there's a question here also. Uh, what does Matan think of the Breaking the Silence campaign by ex-soldiers? Thank you. Um, I'm like really support Breaking Silence, I have to say. Of course, like I'm not support soldiers of what they are doing in the West Bank, but I think the best thing that you can do as you already been there and you think like you rethink about what you did there and you say to the Israeli uh, public and also to the international public, okay, this is what we did there, and you confess of what happened there. I think it's really good to show for the Israeli community and also for the international community what is really happening there from people who was there. Of course, like I'm not supporting people go to the West Bank and to do whatever they're going to do there and then to confess. But if you it's already happened and then you rethink about it and you want to change, I think that's the best way for ex-soldiers. So, Matt, my understanding is that if you're, um, I mean, there are special dispensations for Palestinian Israeli citizens, or maybe Palestinians are certainly in the occupied territories. You 
surely can't force somebody who's being occupied to go and fight for the occupiers, even in this distorted world that we live in, and also for some Orthodox uh, Jewish groups. But you you refused. You were neither of those, um, and you refused to be conscripted, and you were put in prison. But my question to you, and I think you got 110 days, but it, well, that wasn't the only sentence, because frankly, if you just got 110 days, as opposed to having to do two and a half years conscription, then maybe other people would do it, and not for such brave reasons as you. But you ended up getting put in prison six times. Why was that? Did you refuse six times? Yes, like, because when you're, as I said before, when you're certain you're property of the army, so yeah, I mean, you're not really on under Israeli government law anymore. You're more like about uh, the army laws. So I'm officially a soldier kind of when I'm 18 and I need to be in the army. So I'm not refusing Israeli law. I'm refusing uh, the Israeli army command. So you're going there and you say that, hey, I'm refusing to go to the army. And I say, okay, you need to go to a court, which is just uh, one officer and not really a court, as you can think it is. Like a court martial. <laughs> yes, something like that. And then you go in there and you refuse and say, okay, go 20 days to prison. So after you finish your prison time, you've been there, they you send free and they give you like a letter, you need to be today in the same base to become a soldier again and then you go in there and refuse again and again sent it to prison so it's like a process that officially there's no end for it like i was 110 days but there are people who've been much more than me and there's people who've been much less so there's no officially a time when it's ended it's always so like a circle if if you were to return from the netherlands um you could they could demand that you turn up you know to the to uh, an army headquarters again the whole process can go the, for the rest of your life until you do your national service i suppose <laughs> true? Um, no it's not true no. anymore like it wasn't that before i had a committee like after 110 days i had a committee okay. it's called like uh, if i try to translate it a uh, fitness committee to the army and they I had like the committee, which it was, I have to say, really ridiculous. It was kind of a conversation if I am a conscientious objector or political objector, which, okay, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really mind how the army would want to say that, because for me it's the same thing, it's not different. Um, and then he sent me for my like free and give me uh, permission not to be in the army anymore because of my bad behavior. Like basically, I've been there prison. Yes, I I can't see that you'd be very popular with the Israeli authorities, and especially <laughs> because um, because there'll be lots of other people seeing this now. And and of course, we now live in a time when you can communicate. You can also you can communicate with people in the West Bank and beyond. You know, and uh, they're probably so. Well, this is not too good a thing. Um, so, uh, you know, more power to your elbow. We've looked. Here's a question here. Um, Alex in London uh, says, uh, Hi, Matan. Thank you for standing up for what's right. It's great to hear from you. What would your message be to those outside who want to help Palestinians and bring an end to this injustice? And, and what do you recommend people from the outside can actually do to help? 
Uh, it's saying it's on uh, for Palestinian, right? Not for conscientious objectors specifically. Well, I think probably possibly for both. But given that you're a conscientious objector, I mean, what's the, what sort of support can be given to people such as, you know, if you're telling us that perhaps there's only half a dozen people who take this brave stand uh, each year, I mean, how how can how can we kind of uh, help you in what you're doing and, and also help the network that you set up? I mean, we can, we can publicize it as we're doing right now, and we hope this is going to be shared widely. Uh, but what, is there anything practical we can be doing to raise the issue of essentially... Um, Uh, young Israelis who are saying, I am not going to go and sign up to take part in an illegal occupation. I would have thought that you have international law on your side. So I think there's two different ways. Like one is more specifically for uh, the Palestinian and one is more specific for conscious objective. Of course, it's coming together, but it's a bit separately, I would say. Like, I think the first thing is to talk about it and to share a post or whatever you can, like, to raise the awareness of what happened in Palestine, what Israel is doing there, and the oppression. That's the first thing, and I think the main, the most important part, because when people know and there's awareness about it, so there's more action and more pressure of the governments to act, of your governments, wherever, like if you are from London, so the British government. And the other thing that, okay, that's I want to say that only my opinion, I don't want to speak about from as my position in the RSN, like the Refuse Solidarity Network. Like, only my opinion that also biocut uh, Israeli products, because I think one of the best way uh, to make pressure is bioeconomically. And if we make pressure economically, so there's more chance that the Israeli government will understand there is a coincidence of what they are doing and there's, and it's not be beneficial for them to continue the occupation. And so for conscientious objectors, so I want to say that I'm part of the Refusal Solidarity Network, which is also RSN. Um, what we are doing, we are international, we are the only international uh, organization who support only conscientious objector movements in Israel. So we are our own not a conscientious objector movement, but we support them. Only them, and we support uh, three different organizations, Mesarvot, uh, which is basically for supporting conscientious objectors, and U Profile, which they support every person that wants to be the army. That does not need to be only in political ways and reasons. And the third one is Urfud, which is an organization of truth people, which is an ethnical group who see themselves as more Palestinians and not Israelis. So they also refuse to go to the army. And I think the best way for supporting Kuchessa objectors it's by that, that you're supporting us. So it's like to read, like we have uh, our own uh, uh, mailing list, so we send information of what happening in the organization of Kuchessa objectors if like someone now in prison or what it needs to do. And also to support conscientious objectors by sending like letter of motivations. Like I can say that for me, it's really strange me when I know that my action actually have an impact on people. And I see that it's going to other people and there is impact and it's raised the awareness of others. So it's really helping the letter of uh, support. And also we are one of the main uh, uh, 
money source, so basically donations that we send to those organizations so they can create in campaigns, have uh, illegal support from lawyers, uh, also to do demonstration to support them and to raise the awareness in Israel about what's happening. So that's our main ways to support them. And I think this is really mm-hmm. good way to support conscious objectives. And we also try to think about how to make more actions to raise the awareness of the internationals about conscious objectives and the Palestinians. And also like to bring the support of the international community to Israel, to conscious objectives. Well, I mean, Matan, thank you very much. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of practical um, advice uh, and some uh, very, very, very clear ideas about people, how people can help and who they should be getting in touch with. Uh, Caroline Deal actually has another subsequent follow-up. Quick question. Uh, she says, um, Matan, is your organization Refuser Solidarity Network uh, headquarters based in New York City? Yes, it's in New York City. It is. So, you know, if you wanted to share details with us as how she could get in touch with uh, your headquarters there, um, or can she go online? Can she find where you are um, if she wants to be in yes. touch? Yeah. We have a website and you can send us email and we they're also in the website a way to mm-hmm. get to our mailing list. So you get all the mails and all the information that we send in once in a month. So it's not too much information, like not too much, how it's called, overwhelming. Well, I, I think we have the websites are just being put up. Uh, my colleagues at Palestine Deep Dive have put your website up. So, Caroline, you can look there. Thanks. It looks great online, she says. I've subscribed to your newsletter. So, just like that, that has happened. Thank you very much. Um, now, Chet Johnston, um, he says, uh, Chet says, thank you, Matan. The loss of autonomy, the loss of earnings, of control, the psychological pressures you face will be much harder in reality than is immediately evident. And your courage is uh, inspiring says Chet. So there we are. Um, Matan, I just wanted to go back to this question about um, conscripts being forced to serve in the occupied territories, um, which, I mean, the, the occupation of these territories is against international law. When you were talking about fundraising and, t- and taking this up as a bigger issue, I mean, have you thought, I mean, are you engaged in any kind of activity, legal international legal activity? to actually have the uh, international court turn around and say, well, it's illegal for Israel to have any soldiers in these territories, and therefore these people who are refusing to to become conscripts aren't breaking any international law. In fact, we are very supportive of them. Um, it's very problematic to bring the international law because Israel, for example, I remember there was... Uh, now they want there's inter- interrogation in the international uh, for human crime court in Den Hague. They investigate what happened in 2015, I think, about uh, the war crimes in Israel and Palestine. And Israel don't really want to like help and to be part of it. They don't really give them the authority, and they say we don't recognize it. So, nice. like, yeah, it's helping for international, like, the international community, yes, of course, it's matter, but for Israel, Israel don't really care about international law. They sometimes use it even for, like, okay, we will adjust it a bit for the international law, but then it's make it problematic because they adjust it and then it's, it looks fine, but it doesn't mean that it's ethically fine what happened there. 
So, okay, they, it's now it's adjusted because international law cannot, it's not only, not only about the law, it's also about ethics and moral. And yeah, there's no justification for occupation, doesn't matter what, even if it's according to international law, if it could be. Do you find, Matan, that there's a sort of increasing interest in what you have done and the campaign that you are involved in, the Refuser Network, do you think amongst young Israelis themselves, and do you do you get invited to speak to schools and colleges? Are you able to, or do you get stopped from doing that? Do you, can you can you get your message out there? I mean, we're doing it here on social media. Hopefully, there are people people in Israel, Palestine, will be able to see this. But you know, are you able to get your message over effectively? Do you think? Um, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say because. Like when you speak in the media, it's never know you you cannot know who hear it and how they hear it, how it's go to the audience. But I think it is in some ways. Like I think when you talk from your heart and you talk about like you're not the person or like far away, you're like extremely left as sometimes people look in the media extremely left or extremely right, like the you know, the extremists. So it can be touched if you try to talk reason for most people. But I think, like, what I can see at least, like, because I cannot know what happens, you know, if someone hear it from Tel Aviv now. But I know for my close friends and also for my clone's family, they change. I can see that they change. And also I know people who hear me and they change. And also they wanted to refuse after that. So... Yeah, I cannot say about everyone, but at least my close friends and my close uh, family, like even my mother started to talk and she'd be more left. And even she's an English teacher at school, she had like one time English uh, class about human rights, which is not something that happens in Israel. So there are small changes. And what I can see, it's my close uh, people that I know. But I'm sure at least for some point is changing how much it change it change and touch people it's really hard to say but i can see some changes and hopefully it will just grow and grow well Matt, and actually on that note we have to bring things sadly to to a close but just to wish you um all the very very best and uh i think everybody who's been watching and contributing tonight has been saying similar similar way thank you very much for the invitation very, very brave, taking a very strong principal position. And uh, we're noticing, people are noticing. And uh, for people out there, uh, www.refuser.org, the Refuser Solidarity Network. Please get people to subscribe, spread the word, um, and donate. And uh, Matan, thank you very, very much indeed. From all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive, for those of us who are watching around the world, we hope to uh, invite you on the show again. Um, and until next time, just like to thank uh, everybody at Palestine Deep Dive for making this happen today. Um, and until the next time, thank you very much and goodbye from all of it us was here. My at pleasure Palestine. and thank you all.